911, what's your emergency? On the evening of September 6, 2018, Botham John was sitting in his Dallas apartment when he was shot and killed by an off-duty police officer who purportedly mistook his unit for hers and thought he was an intruder. Botham was black, the police officer a white woman, and the incident touched off yet another painful conversation about race, violence, and the lingering fear that if you are black in America, nowhere is safe, not even, it would seem, the literal privacy of your own home. For decades, the old axiom is held, stay away from discussing politics and race, especially at work, and that goes double for company leadership. But what about when it hits close to home and the personal becomes professional? I'm Ashley Marchand Orm. And I'm Erin Essenmacher. This is Future Fluency, a podcast by the National Association of Corporate Directors, where we explore the changing face of America through the lens of innovation and culture and their impact on business. Today, we're going to discuss how companies are grappling with the difficult but necessary issue of discussing race in the workplace. We're going to dig into both why this conversation is so hard and why it's so necessary. On the morning after Botham John was killed, Skip Spriggs was texting with a group of buddies. Skip is the chairman of the Executive Leadership Council, an organization that works to develop and support black leaders. The text thread was made up of other black executives who have ascended to some of the most influential positions in business. As they discussed the events unfolding in Dallas, one of his friends made a painful disclosure. My friend said to me, the young man was one of ours. And everyone on the text thought, you know, we know it's one of ours. It's a young black man. Uh, we, we knew that he was uh, an up-and-comer, uh, stand-up citizen. And he goes, no, no, he, he was one of ours at PwC. And so, and then the text kind of goes silent for a while because we all know emotionally how, how my friend is feeling, not that just happened in corporate America, but this happened to, to one of his mentees that, that he knew had such a bright future. So the very first thing I did was I, uh, I reached out to the CEO of PwC, Tim Ryan, who's a very good friend of mine, who's probably one of the biggest advocates for uh, diversity inclusion of any CEO in this country. And we talked back and forth, and I, I just felt the pain from Tim because Tim has been working so hard to diversify his leadership team. He's put uh, incredible equity in helping drive the CEO action uh, here in America, which is, which is trying to get CEOs to sign, uh, saying that they are going to do something about diversity and inclusion. And we just talked about this incident. And during that conversation, what I found out was this young man was... 24, 25 years old, he was an exemplary employee, and, and, and PwC has a couple hundred thousand employees. He was such an up-and-comer that Tim knew him by name, and, and this was just a tragedy where a young African-American man is sitting in his home, the, the future is so incredibly bright, and now it's gone. What Skip did next underscores how race and identity are tied up in basic existential questions for many Americans, questions that are deeply personal and that you can't just check at the door on your way into work. When I got off the phone with Tim, my next conversation was with, was with my four boys. And it was a different conversation than I've ever had with them before, but it was an extension of a conversation. And most black men are having conversations with their black sons today. And it sounds something like this. 
if you get pulled over by a police officer, put your hand on the steering wheel or put it out the window. When the police officer says, where's your driver's license? You say as loud as you can, I'm reaching for my pocket to get out my driver's license. Is that okay? Because you do not want to be the result of, of biased action because of stereotypes from being young, young black men. And the conversation, the very painful conversation I had to have with my kids is if someone comes to your door, whether it's a police officer or not, you may have to call 911 first or you may have to take extra steps to say, I am opening the door. My hands are up in the air. Officer, what are you here for? And the general population doesn't worry about that or think about that. But if you're an African-American man in America, you have to think about it. And so that next day in corporate America, there's a large black population that's talking about, can you believe that happened? There's a large population of the majority population that doesn't even recognize it's an issue. And so, so Tim took the, the step of bringing his leadership team together and having open discussions for a full day of, of all ethnicities, of all genders, and what Tim reported back to me is that there were tears in that room. Uh, there were emotional outbreaks because, because everyone learned something about their colleagues that they didn't know before as a result of this particular incident that, that I hope some, some way, some way eventually works its way into our society. The incident in Dallas did not just impact PwC. It was a wake-up call that hit home and sent shockwaves throughout the entire audit profession, leading to a series of conversations like the one Tim Ryan convened. Tony Leatherberry is the president of the Deloitte Foundation and is a leader in financial advisory for the firm. She talked about how the Botham John shooting prompted a company-wide dialogue designed to help create greater understanding and promote healing. We were listening to our people that they were hurting. They had certain experiences themselves, and they wanted to have a vehicle to have that open dialogue. We created a day of understanding, which was open to all of our people in offices across the country. The day was all about opening a dialogue among people and giving everyone a chance to share their personal experiences and learn from one another. Our CEO kicked things off with a talk on how each of us can demonstrate inclusive behaviors every day. There was also a module on unconscious bias and small group discussions, and the feedback was overwhelmingly positive from our people. There's a high demand for more opportunities like that, so we're exploring ways to expand upon this inaugural event. We're going to explore how leaders can effectively engage in this conversation and why doing it well is critical to things like innovation and talent retention. We're focusing specifically on talking about race and racial identity, but the idea that underpins this topic, that you can't check your identity at the door when you walk into the office, applies more broadly to things like gender, sexual orientation, and religion. Here's Tony again. People need to bring them whole, their whole selves to work, and if they're hurting or if they are experiencing something that might be unique to them, and that is keeping them from performance, then it has an, ultimately has an impact on business. We're not going to realize the benefits around team performance, around business outcomes, around connecting with our community, as well as not meeting our needs for our clients, our customers, and people. 
And it's not only about these misbenefits, but there are negative consequences to ignoring these conversations. Not providing that opportunity for dialogue and understanding and support can lead to absenteeism, decreased, uh, decreased engagement and sense of belonging. And that all ultimately will impact business. Um, the other thing that I would say is these conversations are a part of investing in our organization's culture and developing our talent, our future leaders, and building strong relationships with our consumer base, our communities, and our clients. So it's really important to foster that. Ashley, this reminds me of our episode on how creating a sense of safety, inclusion, and belonging leads to better team performance. Feeling safe at work starts with knowing you can talk about these forces that have a fundamental impact on your sense of well-being in the world. If we know that feeling a sense of belonging can lead to stronger teams, then it stands to reason that having these conversations in a smart way can actually be good for company culture and ultimately the bottom line. So why is it still so hard? That's the question I posed to Mary Frances Winters. She does diversity consulting through her company, The Winters Group, and wrote a book that tackled the subject head on. The book I wrote, We Can't Talk About That at Work, How to Talk About Race, Religion, Politics, and Other Polarizing Topics, posits that it's a skill and that we have been taught not to talk about these things, and therefore we don't know how. And so people will shut down, they will shy away from bringing up the the topics. And what I'm um, suggesting is that we need to give people the skills to have authentic and real dialogue about a subject that is still dividing um, our society. Race is still, unfortunately, something that divides us. It's still polarizing. Um, I think social media has even made it uh, more relevant to need to talk about it because we see all of these things in our social media feeds around race. People come to work, and if they want to be able to do their best work, if they're feeling unsafe, they feel that they don't have psychological safety, if somebody feels that they're you know, driving while black, you know, living while black, even just walking while black, um, all of these things can create trauma. And there's a growing body of literature, which speaks to race-based trauma. And they uh, actually, the um, behavioral scientists make a connection to race-based trauma and post-traumatic stress syndrome, that it can um, behave in the same way. Many times, though, people don't even realize that they're experiencing race-based trauma. It's the anxiety. It's the fear. You know, will I be welcomed here? And there's a phenomenon called covering. And so you you cover who you really are. I kind of go along, you know, to get along. So what does that do? So I know when I was in the corporate world a number of years ago, what it did for me is that I was spending so much time thinking about what I had to suppress as part of my identity that I wasn't giving all of my time to thinking about how can I innovate for this company because I had to split my thought, my thinking around, okay, am I going to be accepted if I say this, if I look this way? And so I'm so busy thinking about that and that impacts my ability to do my best work. People cannot take parts of their identity and like leave them. Uh, So I, and I think um, many organizations, progressive organizations recognize that. And that's why many organizations are promoting having these conversations, whereas before they would shy away or actually discourage any kind of conversations around race. It's worth noting that the race-based trauma Mary Frances talks about is not just a perception. It's backed up by statistics. In one example, reporters from Vox examining 2012 data from the FBI, the most recent available, made some interesting discoveries. 
While African Americans only make up 13% of the population, they comprise 31% of all people killed by police and 39% of people killed by police while not attacking. A lot of this goes back to the unconscious bias we talked about in episode two. And that piece about the role that social media plays here is also critical. We live in an era of unprecedented transparency. Everyone has a camera in their pocket or the ability to publish first-person accounts of their experience. And incidents which may have gone unreported or not gotten attention 20 years ago now create headlines. I think this is a good thing. It helps us to understand the scope of the problem so that we can do a better job of addressing it through conversations like these. On the other hand, it can understandably trigger that very real race-based trauma and reinforces the notion that folks can't just leave these feelings at the door when they walk into work. Skip talked about another incident he and his friends discussed on that daily text thread. This thread of six or seven of my friends, uh, it's not untypical for us just to talk about current events, whether it's around the election or whether it's around a, a, a new a YouTube clip. Um, so th- this this past weekend, we were talking about a YouTube clip where a young African-American was going trying to get into his apartment, uh, and a woman stopped him and said, I want to see your keys. And he said, why do I have to show you my keys? And she said, well, because I've never, I've never seen you here before. And she goes, I, I need to make sure you live here. And, and his response was, well, how do I, how do I know you, li- you live here? And, and this, this, this video went on for five minutes where where this young black black man had to record this conversation between him and this woman, where she followed him onto the elevator. She followed him to his, uh, his, his apartment. And it was so disturbing because all he wanted to do was just go home. And he felt as though, and I agree with him, why should he have to prove she didn't work in the building? She wasn't a, a resident manager. She was, she was just someone else that lived in the building. And because of his race and because of the way he looked, she thought that she needed an extra level of security to make sure he was going home. And so that's a conversation my friends and I have. And it happens every week. It's just a matter of, you know, what is it? That's such a powerful example of how being the victim of racial bias can make us feel fundamentally unsafe. And when you feel that bias, that sense of insecurity at home, on the street or in the grocery store, it stands to reason that it would spill over into work. Mary Frances had an insightful thought here. We saw something recently where a coach or a referee, I guess it was, decided that this young man shouldn't be wearing locks to um, at his uh, wrestling match and was made 90 seconds before to cut them off. So what if I'm wearing locks in the workplace? What's the perception of me? And so I think the lack of cross-cultural understanding is very, it, it's really high. And that's the kind of work that we do. We, we try to work with people to increase their knowledge and their capability to accept difference. So I think it really is about um, recognizing that our workplaces are more diverse and that you're going to lose good talent if you're not able to create an environment where it's acceptable to talk about issues that are dividing us. And the reason for talking about those issues would be to bring us more together. Ashley, that example was especially powerful because it echoed what Keisha Cash shared in a previous episode, how she couldn't wear her natural hair if she wanted to be accepted or taken seriously on Wall Street. The subject of hair came up in my talk with Tony Leatherberry, too. There is a very sensitive topic out there, so I'm going to give it as an example, and then we can talk about um, listening, the importance of it. And when we talk about bringing our whole selves to work, One topic for black men and women 
is the topic of hair. It's very specific and it's very sensitive. I have a colleague who is a black female in a senior executive role at another organization. And one of her white female colleagues commented on a change she had made to her hair. It was not straightened like she usually wore it. And the woman said that her natural hair was not professional. And so, by the way, straighteners are linked to fibroids and other health issues. So you're seeing a trend with women of color not straightening their hair. This is an example where one person may think they are being curious or making a passing comment, but it's actually deeply insensitive and troubling from the other person's perspective. And so that's an example where, through courageous conversations and open dialogue and listening, we can learn from each other and be better educated on ways we can create a more inclusive environment. Tony's last point there is so important. These moments will happen because, as we learned in episode two, we all have biases, every single one of us. So we will likely say something at some point that may come off as racially or culturally insensitive. The point is not to punish the speech, but to learn as individuals and organizations how to turn those moments into opportunities for dialogue and greater awareness. Here's Mary Frances again. I think education is the key, because if we continue to punish people who make a mistake, do the wrong thing, others are going to shut down. They're saying, well, I don't really know much about that either, or I would have been afraid about that too, so I'm not going to ask any questions. And so, and I think some of the celebrities that we see who get fired or who get chastised for the things that they do, um, I think we lose the opportunity for the teaching moment. It's just sort of like, okay, they, did, they said that wrong thing, fire them, bye. And then we don't have the discussion. Yeah. And you mentioned teachable moments. And you, I think you started to talk about how that would look with you know, dialogue and education. Can you tell me what a, like a healthy teachable moment might look like? So if I hear something that I know is truly offensive to black people, and somebody says that, rather than this righteous indignation um, you need to go because you said that. Let me say, ouch, that hurt. And the person on the other end, rather than saying, well, I didn't mean anything by it. You're just being too sensitive. That's not the response. They stop and they listen. We can't expect all the time that people know what our triggers are and what hurts for us because they haven't had that experience. And so I think that's... Um, the way that we can begin the teachable moments if we have an organizational culture that allows for ouch and educate, allows for people to, and to assume positive intent on the part of the other, to assume that the other did not mean to hurt me. They were not doing it uh, maliciously. They were doing it because they didn't know what they didn't know. That idea of being open to understanding another point of view, the willingness to hear a comment or see an experience through the eyes of another is key. And the blind spots we have around that are rooted in another idea we've touched on before and we'll come back to again in this series, unconscious bias. Here's Tony again. I think we must acknowledge that each of us has an unconscious bias, first of all. And so I would encourage people to be mindful of their own blind spots and acknowledge to yourself that you likely have blind spots that's the first step. Try to come into conversations with openness and a willingness to hear the other individual and an understanding that there is probably some bias on both sides. One of the things I've come to understand and believe is that just because I've never had an experience or something hasn't impacted me doesn't mean it's not real for someone else. And lastly, I think it's important to listen with intent. If we are going to commit to having courageous conversations, we almost uh, need to understand that not everyone is going to use all the right words 
and say the right things all the time. So try to understand that the intention is the right one and what it is they're really trying to say. I love that, especially the part about courage. Part of why we don't have these conversations is the fear that we'll say something wrong or that we'll be misunderstood. But the stakes of not having these conversations are just as high. Exactly. Both Tony and Mary Frances talked about that at length. We'll hear first from Mary Frances and then from Tony. So it has to do with retention. It has to do with losing good talent. Um, I was working with a major professional services organization, a really big one. I won't name them, but a really big one. And this uh, young man, who's African-American young man, um, said that he had come to work and he was um, upset that day because he had heard of another unarmed uh, young black man being killed. And so um, he wasn't, you know, totally on his game that day because that was weighing on him. So his boss said to him, you know, what's wrong? And he told her and he said he got nothing, like not even he got like no words, no nothing. Like not like, I'm sorry, you know, is there anything I can do? Not not even the wrong thing to say would be, well, why does that, you know, impact you? Apparently, the boss said nothing, just kind of looked at him. And in all fairness, maybe she just didn't know what to say. And that's one of the reasons why it's important to provide the skills around what do you say when you when that experience perhaps hasn't been your experience, when you perhaps haven't thought about it, and you perhaps don't know how it's impacting somebody else. But he left the company. And um, we don't think that that was the only reason he left the company, but we do think that that contributed to it because he didn't think that there was an environment where he was being totally valued and, and respected, understood. And he had a skill set that was transferable. And so he took it someplace else. The fact is, in today's diverse and global world, if you're not able to have conversations with people who are not like you, you're going to miss business opportunities. You're going to miss out on channels, markets, and connections. And if you think more broadly about the consumer base that companies need to reach to be competitive, it's more diverse and global. So companies must think about how they are going to reach those markets and be genuine and authentic, or else you risk alienating them. And that's where people come into play. And it's so important to bring all of that talent, all of that skill set, and all of that diverse thinking to bear. If we get these conversations right, we help positively impact our company performance. Research has shown this, um, and that our organizations that have inclusive cultures are two times more likely to meet or exceed financial targets, three times more likely to be high-performing, and eight times more likely to achieve better business outcomes. I love those examples because they tie this discussion to our bigger themes around innovation and culture. These conversations are hard and messy, but so is innovation. No great product was ever developed without a lot of trial and error. If you want to innovate, you have to have a tolerance for failure and a willingness to embrace vulnerability and the unknown. This issue is no different, and the stakes are just as high. Exactly. The good news is that this is not a conversation we were having in our workplaces in a meaningful way even 15 years ago. The fact that we are is progress, but it's also new. And just like mastering any new skill, it takes practice. Here's Mary Francis again. This is a competency. This is something that um, you learn over time. If I want to learn how to play the piano, I don't just take one lesson. And if I want to learn how to play the piano and I've never played it, I don't start with uh, one of Mozart's more, you know, uh, difficult pieces, right? 
we start this work by saying, okay, let's just sit down and have a conversation. Let's talk about power and privilege. Let's talk about unconscious bias. Let's talk about all those things. We may not be ready to start there. And that education process for us starts with self-awareness and self-understanding. Self-understanding of what my experience has been and how that experience is different from others. There's a video, and it's it's out on um, YouTube. Um, it's Randall Stevenson, who's the CEO of AT&T, and he's addressing... Um, all of the employee um, resource groups, the affinity groups, the black affinity group, the women affinity group, the Asian affinity group. Um, and he talks about an experience with his best friend who happens to be African-American. Randall Stevenson is white. And he talks about how for 30 years he'd known this guy, that they had done all, all sorts of things together. They shared, um, you know, difficult times when one of them you know, lost a son and all those kinds of things. But he heard his friend speak and he talked about what it was like being a black man in America, even though his friend is a a physician. And he talked about how when he ran in his neighborhood, he carried his ID because he was going to be stopped and all of these different things. But the point was that Randall Stevenson said, I never knew this about my friend. He said, I never knew that his experiences in life were different than mine. He said, I just assumed because he was highly educated and highly you know, regarded as a physician that his experiences were the same as mine. His access was the same as mine. And he said, I didn't know that. And so that's the point. You talked, too, about the idea that there are essentially prerequisites to have these conversations or at least have them well, right? And that this shouldn't necessarily be a town hall sort of discussion. Are there any other parameters that you can help set around um, what these conversations can Well, like you know, it should. could be a one-on-one. It could be, you know, let's say it might be a leader and, and a direct report. Um, and this, perhaps the direct report wants to share with the leader some of the issues or concerns. And so if it's a, if it's a one-on-one, you know, that leader has to, again, be very, very self-aware and not, and, and recognize that just because it hasn't been your experience, don't minimize, you know, someone, someone else's experience. And so if you're trying to listen across that difference, I'm a white person, you're, you know, you're an African-American, it requires a deeper level. Listen for those things that don't sound right to you. You know, what that, how could that be? And, and listen to yourself to why am I thinking that? You know, why am I dismissing in my head? Why am I, you know, um, or thinking, well, I don't treat him that way, or I don't treat her that way, or I don't feel that way about her, right? And so you're still focusing on yourself rather than focusing on listening to really what the other person is saying. So while you're listening, you should be um, working on questions that you're going to ask to go deeper in your understanding. Why? Can you tell me more about that? Can you give me an example of that, right? And I think, you know, saying, oh, I understand how you feel, that's going to shut the other person down because they're probably thinking, no, you really don't understand how I feel, or I really don't think you understand how I feel. Leaders are often, particularly in Western culture, we expect leaders to be able to give answers immediately, right? Because leaders are all-knowing, right? And so they're supposed to have the answer. But what in this work, we're recommending that we pause and that we reflect and we don't assume that we know what the, what the answer is. Those examples are so helpful in shaping how to approach this work. Tony's view on traits of inclusive leadership map closely to this. And the traits, things like curiosity, vulnerability, and courage, are all traits that have enabled everyone from Madam C.J. Walker to Albert Einstein to Steve Jobs to change the world. Here's Tony. 
it's a key trait that we drive into our culture here at Deloitte. And cultural intelligence is about intentionality and being a curious student of other cultures and understanding that everyone sees things through the same lens and that your own culture likely impacts your worldview and your own behaviors. The other things is, I would say, cognizance of bias. So really understand and continue to challenge yourself in terms of your own biases because biases leaders Achilles heel in my opinion and secondly curiosity um, bringing different ideas and enabling growth and not just shutting someone down because you see things differently collaboration because a diverse thinking team is greater than the sum of its parts and commitment because staying the course is hard and then lastly courage because talking about imperfections and personal vulnerabilities involves personal risk-taking. If you are a leader, it's important for you to make a commitment personally to drive this culture where people will feel safe speaking openly, where courage is rewarded. And so you're creating an environment that meaningful dialogue can take place. When thinking about action steps, it's important to remember that unless you can reach people on a personal level, you cannot have these conversations effectively. And so leaders need to invest in creating intimate settings and safe spaces where people can connect and get to know each other. This is really rich stuff. This concept of being open to new perspectives, new ways of seeing the world, and how your own blind spots might be hampering that ability gets to the very heart of the skills that boards and business leaders need if they want to successfully navigate change. Yes, and I'm so glad you mentioned the board. Because as we know, creating a healthy culture hinges on the tone at the top of an organization. The senior leaders need to own and live those values, or they become meaningless. So we definitely have to have the CEO as not only um, someone who is sort of the sponsor, but we have to have them engaged on a regular basis. I was working with a senior team uh last year and the CEO said I didn't get the Black Lives Matter thing and he was pretty much at minimization so minimization would be all lives matter right and he said I talked with three African-American mothers who work for me and he said it took a while he said but I finally got it he said because it just wasn't my experience he said for if my son was stopped by the police I would say hallelujah yes because he's probably doing something wrong and the police are going to straighten him out and everything's going to be fine he said, I just couldn't get why that wouldn't be, you know, the, the same. For me, as somebody who's African-American, I can't get why I can't get it. But I have to try to understand why that wouldn't even connect for him. So as a CEO, he took the time, right, um, you know, to actually, you know, actually do that. I think it has to be, so, so number one, it's the engagement of senior leaders. I think it is weeding out those leaders who are not willing to go deep in this and say, you're not going to be on my team, right, if that's not going to happen. I think it is about seeing this as being a part of the organization's DNA and not a program and not a training course. So this becomes everything that we do. These conversations are a part of investing in our organization's culture and developing our talent, our future leaders, and building strong relationships with our consumer base, our communities, and our clients. So it's really important to foster that. What a great note to end on. I really want to underline that, that it's about investing in our organization's cultures and developing our talent. It's about being human, right? Realizing we're in this together. 
So true, and so critical to understanding the secret sauce of being competitive in the 21st century. That's a wrap for this episode, but a perfect setup for next time, where we'll talk about the Chief Human Resource Officer as Chief Innovation Officer. I think about 10 years ago, HR was finally getting a seat in the C-suite. As we said, we, it was a long-fought battle. But uh, not only that, boards were even recognizing that the CHR role was an important role to have on the board. So we'd finally moved from the back office to a very important business role where talent was a key part of business strategy. A culture of innovation, in essence, then, is a culture of learning. And just from a people perspective, uh, I mean, sign me up. That's the kind of company I want to work for, right? Because it means that not only is the organization evolving, it is the perfect environment for individuals to continue to grow professionally and, and personally. For NACD and Future Fluency, I'm Erin Essenmacher. And I'm Ashley Marchand Orm. Thanks for listening. Future Fluency is produced and edited by Bruno Falcon with production support from Carrie Sheehan. Special thanks to Jeanette Woods. Our theme song was composed by Kyle Oppenheimer. Future Fluency is a production of the National Association of Corporate Directors. For more information on NACD or to become a member, please visit nacdonline.org.